Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back once more to Signals to Danger. My name is Dan and you probably know by now that I work in the UK rail industry in my day-to-day life. This is Season 3, Episode 2 and in a bit of a first for the podcast. This, well, originally was going to say is the second part of a two-part episode. But actually, this is the second part of a three-part episode, as I did with Part 1. I got writing and I got into it and I realised that actually there is so, so much to say about Carmont. But if you haven't listened to part one of this story, please go back and listen to season three, episode one, Carmont part one. I am going to do a quick recap of what we spoke about last time, but the majority of this episode, we're going to be talking about the cause of the landslip, which led to the accident. So for the full story of the accident itself, episode one is the place to find it. As I said last time round, this episode covers events from only two years ago. It's by far the most recent accident I've covered and emotionally there is a real connection people still feel to this one. So this is a trigger warning in not our usual way of doing things, but it's a trigger warning just to bear that in mind. It's recent, it's raw and it is significant for the industry. But, all that aside, a nice short introduction this time as opposed to last time round. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 2 of Signals to Danger, as we return to Carmont. Circumstances. 
the 12th of August 2020. Just another day in a very unusual year. Coronavirus filled all of the headlines on every news left the world over. It didn't feel like there was any other news worth telling, or not any that received many column inches anyway, until today. Incredibly heavy rain had battered the south and central belt of Scotland over the course of the 11th and overnight made its way towards the Aberdeenshire coast and the town of Stonehaven. Weather plays havoc with everything, and the railway is not immune to this. At 6.38 in the morning of the 12th, one Tango 08 left Aberdeen station, headed for Dundee. While the first call at Stonehaven went without incident, but from that point onwards, things took a turn for the worse. Shortly afterwards, Tango 08 passed the signal box at Carmont. Just after this, they received an emergency message from the signaller. A train travelling in the opposite direction had seen a landslip on the line in front of them. The driver, Brett McCulloch, acted swiftly and brought his train to a stand just over half a kilometre from the landslip and began a waiting game. The line to Dundee, and indeed any stations further down, was now blocked. So going forward was not an option. At the same time as this, the weather was starting to play more havoc and flooding was discovered between Aberdeen and Stonehaven. So, for the train and its seven passengers, a return to Aberdeen was ruled out as well. A decision was taken to return the train to Stonehaven. The station was still accessible and with a location that was slightly less remote and a platform, detraining passengers would be far easier and options would be available to arrange alternatives. To get back there, one Tango 08 would need to cross back over from the down line towards Stonehaven at Carmont Box. Network Rail needed to send staff to set up the crossover, clamping them in reverse so the train could cross safely, and, well, due to the weather and the remote location, this was going to take time. Tango 08 passed Carmont Box for the first time at 7 in the morning, but by the time the train could head back, it was about 20 past 9. This long wait was no doubt unpleasant for passengers, but conductor Donald Dinney was moving around the train, speaking to passengers and passing along the info that he could. At 9.34, one Tango 08 passed Carmont signal box for the second time and accelerated towards 75 miles an hour, headed back towards Stonehaven. Shortly afterwards, the train rounded a corner, found a landslip blocking the track. With it coming into view only 120 metres away, less than four seconds travelling time, there was no opportunity to prevent a disaster taking place. One Tango 08 derailed, and the vehicles of the train scattered, ending up in a pile, with the leading power car and one of the carriages down an embankment at the side of the track burning. This disaster claimed three lives. The driver, Brett McCulloch, conductor Donald Dinney, and a passenger, Christopher Stugbury. This was Britain's worst rail accident for some time, and the first time since Greyrig over a decade before that a passenger had lost their life as a result of a derailment. It was crucial that answers be found to both explain how these men lost their lives and why others were injured, but also to prevent more grieving families being added to the tally of those left behind.
now that the accident had happened, it was time for the RAIB to enter the fold and investigate what had taken place to cause this accident. When investigators arrived on scene, they were met with something that they had not seen in the UK for some time. Sure, accidents, serious ones involving passenger trains had taken place on the continent or further afield in Asia or the US, but most of the accidents the branch had investigated over the last 10 years had involved other sorts of incidents. Near misses, accidents involving pedestrians, road vehicles, track workers. It's not that they hadn't had the sad task of investigating fatalities, but not like this, not caused in this way. When they arrived on scene, investigators set immediately about the task of understanding what had taken place. What had brought One Tango 08 to leave the tracks and scatter in the way that it had? Now, unlike in other disasters, the answer seems to almost immediately unveil itself to them. Just prior to the bridge, they found the landslip. It seemed like a likely contender. And indeed, this conclusion was being made elsewhere. On news outlets, forums, social media, aerial footage of the scene was being shared and analysed by both the industry experts watching as well as enthusiasts following the news at home. To pretty much all and sundry, the link between the slick of debris on the track and the derailed train seemed clear. So we ask ourselves, was it enough? the RAIB to look at the layout of what they found at the scene and say, yep, that's what happened. You've listened to the podcast before. No, of course it isn't. While balance of probability is sufficient for some things in life, in this situation it really isn't enough. When we investigate railway accidents, or indeed any accident of this sort of scale which has caused death or injury, well, certainty is the name of the game. So let's look at how investigators set about confirming the most likely theory for how One Tango 08 derailed. The first piece of evidence which could have supported this theory came from the train itself. Several, well, too many months ago, when I covered the near miss at Chalfont and Latimer Station on the Metropolitan Line of London Underground, we talked about a way that investigators can see what a driver did at the time of the incident forward-facing CCTV. One Tango 08 was fitted with this system, and so investigators downloaded the data from the heavily damaged power car, which had been leading the train, and set about the unenviable task of viewing the footage. I'm sure it will have been uncomfortable viewing, reliving the final moments of not only the train and its journey, but also it would be difficult to watch, certainly... From my own personal opinion, it would be difficult to watch, knowing that they were also seeing some of the last things seen by the train's driver. I can only imagine the feeling of futility as the train rounded the corner and the landslip came into view. The train's progress between the corner and the point of impact passed on screen just as quickly as it will have done on the day. But that's where the footage stopped. Perhaps mercifully... The final frame which was recoverable from the system was several metres short of the point where the train actually collided with the landslip, and the accident itself, well that wasn't visible in the footage. One thing that this footage did show though, was that the train had not derailed prior to this point. 
Running from the point where the train passed over the crossover at Carmont had been normal and the train was behaving as expected. While the footage didn't show the derailment, further confirmation could be gleaned from studying the surroundings in the area of the landslip. In past episodes, we've talked about witness marks, scratches, gouges, paint transfer, other types of physical evidence which can be found at the scene of an accident which tell the tale of what took place. And, of course, they were present here at Carmont. The first marks which were indicative of a derailment could be found towards the outer limits of the landslip debris field, towards the bridge. Here, there could be found a flange mark on the top of the left-hand rail. Now that is a clear sign that the flange of the wheel had been lifted out of the track by the debris field. It was accompanied by a mark on the right-hand rail, which showed that this wheel had started to drop into the forefoot between the tracks. The fact that this was caused by the debris itself and not something before it, by it was shown because there were no such marks in the rails, sleepers or ballast prior to the landslip. It was only after the train had passed the landslip in the direction of travel that any of these marks were present. The sleeper that was in line with those marks that were first found was designated sleeper zero, the point of derailment. And the REIB measures it in this way because then they can refer back to that as a fixed point in the scene. Looking at the landslip over the top of the rails, the left-hand side was slightly deeper than the one over the right-hand rail. So while both wheels ran through the debris over the tracks, the debris on the left-hand side was slightly deeper and slightly thicker, and it will have slowed the left-hand wheel slightly, marginally, microscopically more than the debris slowed the right-hand wheels. This would have generated a yawing motion on the wheel set. And when you couple that with the fact that the train had just started to negotiate an incredibly slight right-hand curve, a radius of about 1,400 metres, it had the effect of displacing those wheels to the left-hand side of the running rail. The right-hand wheel dropped into the forefoot just as the left-hand wheel passed over the left-hand railhead and then entirely dropped off the rail and into the cess, the space at the side of the track. The debris field was not found to be the most deep landslip ever seen, only about 170 millimetres above the railhead on that deeper left-hand side. And while the leading wheel set was derailed by it, there's no evidence that even the second wheel set was derailed by the landslip itself, but at this point the damage was done. Further marks and evidence showed that as the leading bogey yawed to the left, the second wheel set derailed about three and a half metres beyond sleeper zero. Once that leading bogey had derailed, the entire power car had started to rotate to the left, and track showed evidence that the flanges on the trailing bogey had started to climb the left-hand rail, and that derailed 7.5 and 13.3 metres beyond sleeper zero, respectively. By the time the train reached sleeper 40, the leading wheel set sat almost central across that left-hand rail, and the paths carved out by the wheels were marked in the ballast along the track, and you could follow them directly through to the bridge parapet, or at least what was left of it. This evidence showed clear, unequivocal proof that the derailment had been caused not due to a fault with the bridge, and not by something else prior to the impact with the landslip. It was the arrow that pointed at what realistically is quite a 
a reasonable assumption to make. And if balance of probability was a sufficient proof to get, you would say that it was the landslip. But this is the way that the RIB assured that claim. Even in its last moments, one Tango 08 had drawn a diagram in the ground that investigators could decipher. The accident had an immediate cause, an official and proven one. Not the end of the work that needed doing, though, not by a long shot. Investigators had the answer to how the train derailed, but that left a whole lot of why. way to work through a problem like this is to keep following the problem backwards till you reach the reason it happened. In health and safety, I suppose you might call this a root cause analysis. It's never acceptable to stop at the immediate cause. You need to work the problem back up the chain to understand the real cause, the root cause. Let's take an example away from the railway. Mrs. Jones is walking through a shopping centre. Let's call it the Smith Shopping Arcade. She falls and she breaks a hip. Unfortunately, this sort of thing does happen every day. Now, the immediate cause of Mrs. Jones's injury is that she fell on the floor. Um, That doesn't really tell us what happened. It doesn't tell us why. And it certainly doesn't prevent Mrs. Fox from slipping next week. So an accident investigation would take place. And an examination of where Mrs. Jones fell, well, that unveils a wet floor. Fantastic. We have a causal factor. Mrs. Jones fell because the floor was wet. Should we stop there? No, because if we go one step further on, we learn that the floor was wet because the cleaning staff had just used a floor cleaner on it, a nice fancy machine that, well, as designed, is supposed to dry the floor behind it as it cleans it. It's supposed to leave a nice, safe environment. So we've gone further on with it and we've got an answer. Have we though? Because the use of the floor cleaner doesn't answer everything that we need to know. Can we take it another step back? In this completely made up and imaginary case, the floor cleaner is found to not have dried the floor properly because a squeegee blade at the rear hadn't been replaced in line with the manufacturer's instructions. Brilliant. Can we go further back? Why wasn't it done? And it turns out the answer to this is because the good folks in the Smith Shopping Arcade management team had implemented an internal maintenance regime which doubled the length of time between changing the blade to save money. The immediate cause of Mrs. Jones's injury was the fall, but the root cause, well, that was the fact that the business had made a decision to extend the maintenance intervals of the machine to save money. You could have stopped digging at any point in that theoretical 
imaginary scenario. But until you identify the root cause, that altering the maintenance intervals was not working, it was against the manufacturer's instructions, and it was creating a dangerous condition, well, at best, you might only be increasing the time until Mrs. Fox slips on a wet floor. Investigators at Carmont had their immediate cause. They knew that the train had derailed because it collided with a landslip, and Really, this is an understandable and realistic immediate cause. The railway is no stranger to landslips derailing trains. We only need to go as far back as 2016 to find an example of it. On the West Coast Main Line, on the 16th of September, a London Midland train collided with debris that had fallen from an embankment just before a tunnel portal. The train derailed to the right and shared a glancing blow with a northbound Virgin service inside the tunnel. Now... Luckily, that is as serious as that accident got, but the potential for serious injury or loss of life was very real. We talk on this podcast sometimes about timing being slightly different and the impact that that could have. Two trains travelling towards each other on a main line, if they were seconds further apart, that could have been a head-on collision in a tunnel with a high closing speed. The potential for serious injury or loss of life, was incredibly real. Unfortunately, though, the railway has lost lives before as a result of a landslip. If we head back to 1995, a conductor was killed at Aysgill on the summit of the Settle and Carlisle Railway after his train collided with a landslip and then a second train collided into them. In both the Aysgill and Watford incidents, soil and rock had been washed down onto the track from poor weather. And it is a theoretical weakness of cuttings and embankments. And it's not just something that's seen on railway infrastructure. To begin to understand the mechanism which caused the slip, investigators will pore over the debris itself and the slope above. And that's where investigators at Carmont looked next. And it was here, well, it was here that they started to find answers. It is a reasonable assumption that the debris that you would find at the base of a landslip would be made up of the same material as the slope it fell from. The embankment adjacent to the downcess, this cutting wall, the space next to the line, was relatively green and damp. Reasonably, you would expect grass, trees and soil to form the bulk of the detritus that had shattered itself across the tracks and caused the accident. And considering the conditions on the day, that would be fairly in keeping with what had been seen elsewhere. In fact, that landslip that the train had previously just avoided to the south, that was composed of that, soil and foliage. And it wasn't just these two landslips that had taken place on that day. Within the RIB report, there was a map of known infrastructure problems in the area of the network between Inverness and the borders, and there were five other landslips that had been reported prior to 6.55 on the morning of the 12th. Five is a big number, and that isn't including the one at Irony's Bridge or the one at Carmont. In any case, the landslip that was found at Carmont was very different to those other ones, and the key difference was this. While the embankment adjacent to the land was green, with damp soil and vegetation, the landslip was not. The earthy colour of the land adjacent to the line had not flowed down onto the tracks. The debris that covered the tracks was 
pinkish grey, almost the same colour as the ballast that lay underneath them. The landslip wasn't formed of dirt. It was composed of gravel, stretching out from a single point up on the embankment and fanning out over the line. This was not a normal landslip. And now to answer the question of why lives had been lost, the investigators needed to explain where it had come from. to better understand where this gravel had come from, we should talk about something that Aberdeenshire saw plenty of on the day of the accident. Water. Water is an unusual substance in some respects. It's something that in small quantities can be, well, incredibly handy and safe. A glass of water on the bedside, a pan on the hob, it's part of everyday life and it even forms a pretty sizable chunk of what makes up both you and me. But when we start to see the larger quantities, it can be fairly destructive. You, you only need to look at the beautiful valleys all over the world, carved out by the force of water running over the land, carving away slowly and slowly. Look at seawalls eroded and destroyed by the percussive impact of wave after wave. And then we have the issue of cuttings and embankments and other naturally occurring slopes. Saturating the soil with water can reduce its stability to the point where it doesn't exist. Soil becomes mud and slides down. Water can be deadly if it's not managed appropriately, but luckily as a species we've had plenty of time to perfect the art of doing so, from the construction of tidal barriers to homeback storm surges and control river levels to building vast dams to harness the power of water to generate electricity and power our cities. We've got a really good understanding of how water works. Society has a really good understanding of how water works. I'm not a massive expert on it myself, but we know about the effects it can have and how to control it. So where does this understanding come into the incident at Carmont? Well, there was a real need to manage water flows here as well to keep the railway safe. By virtue of... Physics and gravity, water always wants to flow downhill, which is fairly believable. I don't think I'll need to justify that comment to anybody. And cuttings are, by their very definition, lower than the level of the ground that surrounds them. And with a relatively steep downhill slope on either side facing into the railway generally. If we left Mother Nature to her own devices once we dug out this cutting, then we would no doubt find it full of water every time the heavens opened, which wouldn't be very compatible with running a reliable or safe timetable. So quite often we will look to manage this water through the use of drainage. The water can come, but the industry decides where it's sent when it arrives, not nature. The sequence of earthworks in the area of Carmont, the cutting and then the lead down to the valley where the bridge was, was one that needed drainage to protect it. If we were to look at it from the direction that one Tango's area was travelling at the time of the accident, that left-hand side of the track had a relatively steep high cutting wall. 
and at the top of it was a farmer's field, which generally sloped downhill towards the railway, this whole large catchment area, of which all the water that landed on it was sent down towards the railway. Without any intervention, all of the water that fell on that part of the the field would naturally roll down the field through surface runoff and would run towards the top of the cutting. And the risk would be that it would destabilise the wall of the cutting itself and it would create a very real risk of landslip if it didn't skim over it and just create a very real risk of flooding. To mitigate the risk here, earlier in the life of the railway there had been drainage installed along the crest of the cutting wall. A nine-inch diameter clay pipe which ran all the way along the top of that cutting, the crest, until it reached the general area of where the derailment took place. Now, I'm going to take a second to try and describe this to you, but this is probably one of those moments where I'm going to say, look, go and have a Google, look at some of the photographs and try and understand this. But there was a field at the top of, of where the railway line was, at the top of the cutting. But towards the north of it, this turns into something of a funnel shape. So you almost have this squared off funnel, which all the land starts to float down point down towards the railway line. And that includes the crest of the cutting, which drops down quite steeply at a ratio of like one in three. It is probably worth going and having a look at some pictures. Even if you don't read the full report, just go and have a look at the pictures because as we go into the rest of this episode, that funnel shape and the things in that area are going to get fairly fairly important. In any case, the the drain at the top of the crest followed down into this funnel shape along the front edge of it, and then the outflow was deposited into an open channel which fed into a catch pit, which is a kind of access and inspection hatch on the drainage system of the track's drainage system. We're also going to talk about catch pits um, quite a bit going forwards. They are essentially a manhole. So you can open up and access the pipe, you can clean it out, and most drainage systems will have catch pits in some form. After the water from the crest drain drained into the track drainage system, it was then piped to an outflow at the start of a ditch, which just directed all the water down into Karen water below. Now, there was drainage in place, but there were issue with earthworks in the Carmont area. Deterioration of nearly 500 metres of cutting slope had been noticed, and in 2008 a landslip in the area actually did block the line, so Network Rail, well, they took action to improve safety in the area. They commissioned in 2009 contractor Carillion to commence planning of improvements in the area. Now, the likelihood is that you've probably heard of Carillion. At one point, they were one of the largest construction firms on the UK scene, and They were founded in 1999 as part of a demerger from Tarmac. Yes, the Tarmac. The construction and facilities management firm was a really big player on the scene, but also within rail as a contractor. Unsurprisingly, the arm that did the rail stuff was called Carillion Rail. If you mention the company name in certain circles, you might find that they don't have the best reputation. 
But it's a bit of a moot point because in 2009, they were embroiled in a bit of a blacklisting scandal. And by 2015, concerns about the company's debt level were raised by financial analysts. By 2018, the firm was eventually liquidated with many redundancies and parts of the business being auctioned off and contracts signed over to other companies. So Carillion was a bit of an infamous name for a while, a few years back. But back in 2009, Network Rail had no concerns about awarding them this contract. The work that was to be done was relatively simple, in addition to preventing rockfalls on both sides of the railway by installing rockfall netting. Carillion would need to provide a new drainage system to replace the aged and insufficient crest drain, that um, 9-inch clay pipe. That needed replacing with something more... Robust, I think, is probably the word. Carillion, in turn, contracted design and engineering consultancy firm Arup to design the drainage scheme that it would build. The specification was for a system that could handle a 1 in 100 years rainfall event, and that is what Arup delivered. The drain was to be constructed en français, which is a terrible joking way of saying as a French drain which is a filter drain. The new pipes would be a bit further back from the cutting crest than the old one. They would consist of an 18-inch pipe, a perforated 18-inch pipe located at the bottom of a trench. The trench around it was filled in with gravel between 20 and 40 millimetres in diameter, and this would allow for water to enter the drainage pipe percolating through the gravel all along the length. So you wouldn't just have a few input drain holes, all along the length water could flow in and enter the pipe that way. And that's called a French drain. At intervals along the pipe, there was the inclusion of catch pits to allow for the inspection and maintenance of the system. As I said before, these are essentially manholes with a chamber beneath them, and they've been spaced out evenly enough along the top of the crest. And as I'd said before, Towards the northern end of that crest, it reached a point where it started to slope down steeply. At the very top of that was catch pit number 16. From that point, there was a steep drop into the funnel section. Catch pit 18 was about 41 metres further down the slope in a straight line. After that catch pit, the drain turned towards the track and ran downhill for a further 12 metres until it reached catch pit 19, which was just about 5 metres from the railway. At that point, the pipe ran parallel to the line until it deposited the outflow into the same ditch that the old system did, and in turn, Karen water. This system of pipes at the lower end also replaced the previous open channel before the outflow pipe to the ditch. This was an isolated, brand new, high-capacity drainage system. And the design was comprehensive on a much more substantial scale than the old one, and all the modelling that Arup had done had shown that it would be perfectly adequate for the job and it would meet that 1 in 100 um, return target. You might have put two and two together, though, at this point. I'm talking a lot about this drainage system. The landslip was composed of gravel, and gravel was what would fill this brand new drainage system, designed to keep the track safe. At this point, it should come as no surprise that yes, it was one and the same. 
Investigators found that the gravel had been washed out of the French drain, a whole 9 metres of it from the steeply sloped section above Catch Potatine, and 6 metres from the trench below where it pointed towards the track. All of it flowing down the cutting wall and onto the railway line, where it had a devastating effect. A RUP had been commissioned to design a system which would be safe and could efficiently remove water levels seen in that one in a hundred year rainfall event. So why had it failed after only a decade, and during an event that it should have been able to handle? The REIB wanted to know the same, unsurprisingly enough, so they commissioned ACOM, an international consulting engineering firm with expertise in drainage matters. They asked them to model events on the 12th of August 2020 and to review the drainage system as it was designed by Arup. And their findings only seemed to offer more questions in a way. The ACOM report commissioned stated that the pipework as designed was of sufficient size and design to carry the flows that the weather data suggested had been present on the day. And this was all according to the very detailed very comprehensive modelling that they undertook. So clearly something had gone wrong. But what had it been? Plans are part of everyday life, and sometimes these are plans on a small, personal scale. I planned for this to be a single-part episode, and it turned into a two-part episode, and then I planned for it to be a two-part episode, and it turned out to be what feels now like a three-part episode. And for a small-scale plan in a personal setting like that, it's absolutely fine if what you decide to do doesn't always come through. Plans can change if it's something like that. But sometimes plans need to be a bit more set in stone. The plans for an engineered drainage solution, for example. When Arup created the plans for the new drains at Carmont, they submitted detailed documents to Carillion to follow so that they could carry out the work exactly as it was designed. This was the design that had been modelled and checked to ensure it would be adequate for the scope required. So is that what happened on the ground? Not exactly. When engineers get on site and start the physical task of actually constructing the thing, sometimes there are additional queries which are raised. And maybe it, well, maybe it feels like something isn't possible to undertake as it was designed. And sometimes maybe engineers believe they can see a more efficient or less challenging, cheaper way to do something as opposed to the plans I've had provided. And there is a formal system for challenging and Maybe challenging isn't the right word, maybe more appropriately put, is asking the question. The TQ, or the technical query form, was what was used by Carillion. The majority of TQs which were raised to erupt related to the work that was to stabilise the slope with the rock netting, but two of the TQs, they're related to the drainage system. Specifically TQ19 and TQ20. 
Both were submitted at more or less the same time and both related to that steep section of pipe which was to run down the steep sloping section at the funnel feature. At the point when a RUP received a TQ, they would consult the designer's expertise and modelling, respond to the question with an answer. Generally, either yes, that's safe to make the change quack on, or no. No meant it isn't safe or it won't work. Please don't do that. This is why. So when they received TQ19, they saw the question on it was, can we omit catch pit 17? And you might have clocked a few minutes ago when I was talking about the layout of that new drain. I kind of jumped between catch pit 16 and 18. There was on the initial plans a catch pit 17, which would have been placed about three quarters of the distance between the two on that steeply sloping section of land. When the TQ was submitted, it was on the grounds that looking at the site before work, it would be challenging to construct on that steep slope. A RUP responded on the 2nd of May 2011, just before the materials were delivered to site, with the answer that, yep, it could be omitted, but note that the excavation for the pipe itself would now need to be deeper to run straight between CP16 and CP18, and you might have noticed I've just started abbreviated catch pit to CP, because that is going to come up a lot and it will be helpful to have them interchangeable. <laughs> on April the 18th, the materials for the drains themselves arrived on site and the next day, TQ20 was submitted. It was a query from Carillion's site engineer stating, can we make the drainage section, which runs down the north slope of the downside, a carrier pipe instead of a filter drain? I would think that the single-sized aggregate, which is used for backfilling the drainage section, will be washed out during high flows of water. Will the drain actually collect water on this gradient? It seems that the water runs down the steep slope parallel to the drain, rather than towards the line perpendicular to the drain. It's not clear what prompted this concern, but it sounds fairly grounded considering what took place. However, the response from Erup was to retain the filter drain and the designer was of the professional opinion that there wasn't to be expected high flows of surface water and that all the water would filtrate to the pipe within the trench. And he also was relying on another form of protection that was built into the design, which was geotextile. As designed, the trench wasn't simply just dug out and filled with pipe and gravel. Two distinctly types of material were allocated to line the trench itself. On the downhill side and the bottom of the trench, there was to be an impermeable membrane that would stop water from seeping into the trench while permeating into the trench and then seeping back out on the downhill side and continuing towards the railway. And on the uphill side and the top, a geotextile membrane. This is a material with really fine holes in it which allows water to enter, but not soil particles to get into the drain and clog up the holes. Now it's important to have that in place because the more soil that's washed into the system the more that those gaps between the gravel will be filled and the less efficient the system would get at draining water away quickly. Um, if we think about your kitchen sink, you forget to get those last bits of stir-fry edge from your frying pan or your wok and, well, how quickly does water start to pool in the bottom of the sink once the grates in the plug hole are blocked? In any case, once Carillion received that response from Erup, they queried it again. Erup reviewed the decision and found a discrepancy. Now, they started by stating that they need to ensure that minimal water reaches the cutting face from the slope above. By adopting the carrier pipe, they would purely be relying on topography 
to divert the water to the north of CP16. Now, what they mean by that, what all of this means is that instead of a filter drain, the design, the, the constructors on the site, Carillion, wanted to put in a carrier pipe. And all that is, is a buried pipe. There's no filter. The pipe itself can't take any water off the surface and get it into it. It purely is a pipe carrying water flow. That would mean that for this section of the funnel, all the water that they wanted to stop getting to the cutting face would have to just be relied on the shape of the land to direct it away. Erup did notice one thing while they were engaging in this conversation with Carillion, though. They noticed that the photos of the site that they'd had provided didn't quite match the, the contour lines on the topography data they'd been provided with. So the exact shape of the land on site didn't seem like it matched up to what they'd been provided with to design the system. So they suggested a really simple survey be undertaken to remap the topography of the area to empower everyone to have the right information to make the right decision. The RAIB were unable to find any evidence that that survey was undertaken. But in any case, Carillion went back again and proposed a third solution which involved the reinstatement of CP17, the, the missing catch pit, and a combination of filter drains and a straight carrier drain laid underground with no filter. This was not undertaken, though, through the TQ process. This was just a proposal which went from Carillion to Arup. Now, in early of May, the first installation took place. The very lowest part of the system, which was to be undertaken within the boundary of the railway, was where they started. This work required possessions. Well, and that's where the line is closed to rail traffic and the work is done safely without the passage of trains and literally means take possession of the line. Network Rail don't have it to run trains on. Train operating companies don't have it to run trains on. It is the, the work site now of the contractors. The pipe from the outlet to Karen Water was put into place as was catch pit 19 next to the line. The contractors also installed a pipe that led from CP19 up to the point of the railway boundary. This is one of the first places where the plan was deviated from. The pipe that led to the railway boundary passed through the designed location of CP18. Yet CP18, well that wasn't constructed. At this point though, work stalled. The remainder of the installation was to take place off railway property, outside of the railway boundary and on private land and this required a lot of legal mumbo-jumbo. Um, not, not my forte, but if you want to buy land off someone and build on it, there's a lot of stuff that needs to happen in the background. So it was actually August before Carillion could get back on site to do any further work. Companies tend not to make money when their staff sit around for six months doing nothing. So much of the team that had started working on the drain had been dispersed to other projects and the return to site brought more or less an entirely new crew, but also a new site engineer. To familiarise himself, he asked to rub the TQ documentation he was provided, inclusive of the request for survey data. But the proposed design which re-added CP17 wasn't included in the paperwork he was provided with. Carillion had not submitted it as a TQ document. There is a slight question here about 
Carillion's um, record keeping because shouldn't really have had to go to erupt to ask for the TQ information because it had come from Carillion in the first place. But in any case, at this point, Carillion constructed the remainder of the drainage system. They installed CP18 in a slightly different location, around seven metres away from where it had been designed. And additionally, while the design spec showed straight pipes between each catch pit for easier flow, just downstream CP18, a bend was installed in the pipe, and it was required because of the fact that the site had been moved. CP17 was never built, and instead that long steep section was installed as a filter drain all the way up to CP16, and then the remainder of the section was completed along the top of the crest, finishing off the work. The last stage was to install a new fence on the non-railway side of the drain to denote the new railway boundary. The plan that was created by Arup, as you probably already realised though, did not relate exactly to what was found on the ground when Carillion left site. We know that CP18 had been moved from a location that would have placed it in the base of the funnel structure. The engineers state that this had been done to keep the pipe between CP18 and CP16 more than two metres away from the cutting crest, which they were supposed to do as best practice. But it wasn't the only problem with moving the catch pit. The original plans that Arup provided called for the pre-2010 clay pipe drain and the old drainage ditch outflow pipe both to be connected into CP18 to collect any residual flow from either. And with the catch pit moved, this didn't take place. It couldn't take place. It wasn't in the right place to connect to those pipes. And it wasn't the only issue that investigators found with CP18 either. Not only was it in the wrong place and supposed to connect into two other pipes, but the outflow pipe from CP18 itself was supposed to be sealed. In fact, both the inflow and outflow pipes of catchbits are supposed to be sealed. But the pipe down towards CP19 was anything but. It kind of just sat in a big, wide, gaping hole in the side of, of the catchbit. Instead of a manufacturer cut hole, it appears that they'd cut another hole at site. And there was no way you could have sealed that pipe to the catch pit. And while we're picking out faults, in the washed out section, upslope of CP18, there wasn't any geotextile. And in the last section of trench, before the pipe reached CP19, locally dug material had been used to fill in the trench and not gravel. So just the stuff they dug up. The new drain at Carmont was completed, and it featured several examples of where the tested design had not been followed. But above all else, one feature would have a drastic effect on this section of drainage. One feature that had not been included on the plan, or included in the design, but that investigators found on the ground when they began to map out the site. But it was this feature, this undesigned, unwarranted, unrequired and unnecessary feature that contributed so directly to the disaster a decade later and the damage, injuries and deaths 
that took place. Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The report into Carmont tells us that the drainage system was designed to operate in a way which would see water entering the drain evenly distributed along its length. This was an accepted design that was proven elsewhere, and there were only three locations along the entire system that this might not be the place, and these were accounted for in the design of the system. At the southern end of the drain at the top of the crest there was a burn, a small stream that ran through the agricultural land, and that connected into the drainage system and that was accommodated appropriately with an intake chamber. There was the issue of the old field drain that was left in place and the site of the original drain channel at the foot of the funnel, and we know that the design saw these connected into the original designed location of Catch Pit 18. But this didn't take place because the feature was moved. But apart from this, there wasn't any other location that water should enter the system in a concentrated manner. Except when the REIB and ACOM assessed the situation that they found on the ground, they found that there was. Throughout the investigation, the gorse that covered the ground in the funnel structure was removed, so the topography below could be examined and they could see what was going on under there. And when this took place, investigators found something else that they weren't expecting. A bund. Now, a bund is a type of artificial ridge, a, a long mound. I mean, you have possibly seen this sort of thing before. For example, if you uh, take a large petroleum tank, like the industrial type one or a chemical tank, and you've seen it sort of surrounded by this inverted moat, a mini embankment, that's a bund. And in that context, it's used to limit the pollution of contents if storage leaks. Gives you a bit of extra protection. Now, in the funnel at Carmont, the bund was a relatively straight feature running perpendicular to the tracks from about the point the new drain was installed to around two-thirds of the way back to the back edge of the funnel feature. 
This long ridge, this bump in the landscape was not included on any engineering diagrams, any plans or any instructional documentation. Construction wasn't requested or queried through a TQ form. It just should not have been there. But it was. And it was almost certainly constructed as part of the project. A satellite image from April of 2011 showed that it wasn't present there, and another image from 2014 showed that it was. Additionally, there had been evidence that the Bund wasn't a naturally occurring feature. It hadn't just been there as part of the lay of the land and not noted down in any of the topography or any of the LIDAR scanning or anything like that. It was man-made. It was relatively uniform in its cross-section. It had a linear straight length of about 20 metres. And inside it, embedded within it, was construction debris. Wires, small pieces of geotextile. It... It was constructed by Carillion. The Bund isn't shown on the detailed survey that was undertaken in May 2010 after removal of gorse before construction. It isn't shown on any erupt drawing. The words that the Carillion site manager used to describe the surface water flow, it will flow perpendicular down the funnel structure in TQ20. That's inconsistent with a Bund being there. That, And we'll see shortly why that is. And finally, this bund crossed an area that had an access road on it as part of the works. It would be traversed by excavators and other machines moving up and down the slope, and this road was in the 2011 satellite imagery, but if the bund had been there, it would have made that road really difficult to use and probably unsafe. It is... There is there's a, a really strong level of certainty with which the report and anyone else can say Carillion built the Bund. There is no evidence to support the reason why Carillion did so. No records of any formal or informal approval process being followed to take it forward. But it was built. And regardless of why it was added into the scheme, the effect that this feature had was far more real than the approval process. It introduced an incredibly negative impact on the performance of the new drainage system. This bund ran across the funnel structure. It acted like a dam. It cut off the normal flow of water down the funnel, parallel to the new drain. Instead, water was directed towards a single point on the filter drain in line with the end of the bund. Not not all the water that entered the system, but any of the water that would have flowed down that funnel system or flowed parallel to the drain and then entered it further down the valley was directed from this perpendicular bund straight into the side of the channel. There was evidence that this had been the situation for some time. A gully had formed at the upslope edge of the bund and That was formed by erosion as water was directed along the base of it towards the drain. There were rocks found in the base of this gully that were coated in localised patches of green organic growth. Moss. Now that only exists after long periods of intermittent water flow. Around a decade before the accident at Carmont took place, 
the dominoes had been set up, and it was likely only a matter of time until disaster struck. choices of the drainage system at Carmont and the variances between Arup's plans and Carillion's actions had set the stage for the accident to take place and using the extensive research undertaken by ACOM were able to understand the mechanism which led to the track becoming obstructed. ACOM had conducted an analysis of the drainage system which demonstrated that the system could have handled an evenly distributed water flow but it was clear that this didn't take place. So they also conducted an overland flow analysis which showed the way that water moved across the catchment area above the railway. The study was quite clear in what it showed and it allowed investigators to understand the mechanism which took place to wash out the gravel in the drainage trench. The heavy rainfall in the area on the morning of the 12th had dropped 51.5mm of rain in a period of four hours. But this hadn't been steady throughout as bands of rain moved through the area the intensity increased in peaks, and this meant that there had been periods, such as between 8.20 and 8.35 in the morning, which 10mm dropped in that one condensed 15-minute period. Overland flow had directed a significant chunk of water in the area down towards the funnel, in the north-east corner of the catchment area, towards the railway line and the outflow to Caron Water. But, as this water started to flow down into the gully, it came into contact with the bund and the gully that formed at its bed. The gully directed the water directly into a single point on the field drain, around 4 metres upslope of, upslope of catch point 18, at a flow rate which peaked at 140 litres every second. 140 litres a second. Analysis had shown that that drainage system would allow 14 litres a second to percolate through the gravel and into the drain. However, this was only a tenth of the flow that was present at that peak on the day. The flow that couldn't be absorbed by the drain couldn't be percolated through the gravel fast enough would begin to run along the top of the drain and started to have an effect on the stability of the system as it became surface runoff. ACOM assessed the effects of this using a sediment analysis which looks at the ability of a water flow to move material as a sediment and they conservatively estimated the peak flow here of around 86 litres a second. This flow was perfectly adequate to start transporting the gravel material surrounding the pipe downstream and at some point between 8 and well quarter past 8 and 9am this is exactly what the modelling shows that it did. The gravel from two metres upslope of the gully and all the way down the slope to catch Potatine was stripped from the trench and flowed downhill towards the track. As the flow reached catch point 18, it started to strip out gravel from the section of pipe below, which led down to catch pit 19 and the railway. There was one element of the system here which could have protected the drainage system at least to a degree, but we can't be sure how much. 
the geotextile membrane which sat across the top of the trench, underneath that top first layer of gravel. The presence of this membrane had been considered by Rupp when they assuaged the concerns of washout risk in response to TQ-20. But the geotextile had not been fitted to this section of drain. This assumed element of protection was absent, and so the gravel was washed out, fairly unimpeded. Moving down the slope to CP-18, we early discussed that gaping hole at the downslope side of the catch pit where the pipe to CP-19 was connected. Until this point, the hole was relatively sealed-ish by the gravel surrounding the downstream pipe, but at the point that gravel was being stripped out, the water could exit the catch pit around the pipe as well, likely distributing the flow further down the hill, although modelling this itself proved difficult. As this intense flow of water continued down towards Catchpit 19 and the railway line, it continued to empty the trench of what had now become a sedimental floor. The gravel previously used as part of a robust protection system now becoming debris and a very real hazard to the safety of the line. At the point the floor reached the area of trench that had been infilled with that locally dug material, the floor began to flow over it and fanned out across the railway line leaving the lethal stumbling block that One Tango Zero Eight would discover in all too short a period of time. All of this destruction took place in a relatively short period of time, especially compared to the prolonged heavy rainfall that had led to it. In that short period, it was after the point that both northbound trains had managed to run through the section. It was after the point that One Tango Zero Eight had passed on its southbound journey. No trains had either seen the landslide take place or the debris on the track. And over the noise of the torrential rain, the contractors down in the valley working on the bridge, they wouldn't have heard it happen. Nobody knew. Nobody could warn the innocent and unsuspecting passengers and crew of One Tango Zero Eight. Sat just a mile and a half away, waiting patiently to head back through the section towards Stonehaven. From the point that the water started to wash out the gravel on that short section of pipe, the stage had been set for the accident to take place, and nothing was going to prevent it from happening. Carmont is a really good example of why designers create such detailed plans. And also why you rely on and indeed pay for competent designers who fully understand the area that they are designing. Carillion had contracted her up to use their expertise to design this system in a safe way which would deliver the objective of either protecting the coupling slope and the railway without introducing risk. And when Carillion wasn't sure about the design, they submitted technical queries, which Arup answered. But the construction of the pipe, 
planned locations of catch pits and alignment of the pipes, inclusion of membranes, and, well, all those things had changed between the plan and the physical drainage system. And the construction of this unplanned, unrequired, and useless spund was the smoking gun in this disaster. The drain, when confronted with what was almost a one in a hundred years rainfall event, exactly what it had been designed to deal with, had not been able to cope with it, because the bund channelled an enormous chunk of the water into one single pinpointed location on the pipe. The RAIB report acknowledges that this drainage system was vulnerable to this type of concentrated flow, but had Carillion built what they were supposed to build, it wouldn't have been subjected to this type of concentrated flow. In episode one, we talked about the what, the what happened on the day, how one Tango Zero Eight collided with the landslip, and what this meant for the train and the people aboard it. This time around, we've spoken about the cause of the landslip, the drainage system, which was installed in 2011, and the fact that it just wasn't built according to the plans. It wasn't built to spec. And how the rainfall on the day had a catastrophic effect on the system, leading directly to the crash of the fated train in 2020. And we've taken over two hours so far to to go through this. But... It's a big, significant disaster. Possibly more so than some of the other episodes I've done before, and I have covered the worst, I've covered the second worst. And those are massive disasters, but this is significant because it's relevant now. It is. This is the modern railway. This is not... And one of the nice things about talking about Quinton's Hill and Harold Wheelston, and... It's nice to look back and say... Oh, at least that doesn't happen anymore. You know, we don't have... Um, we don't have some of the ridiculous lack of safety. We don't have people going to the pub on their lunch break. We don't have um, trains not fitted with AWS. We don't have pass- drivers passing signals at danger and no TPWS to kick in and help out. Carmont is significant because it really is an accident on the modern railway. It is an accident that took place on the system that we have now with the years and years and years of rules, regulations and safety procedures that we've said before are paid for in blood. I'm really, really diving into this. And, and it's for me, just as much as anybody else, I, did ne- I, I never expected to get two full hours out of this episode but I'm afraid to say you may be happy or maybe not happy this is definitely a personal opinion on your end but we've done two hours but there is a lot more left to say and again I said last week this is going to be a two-parter it's going to be a three-parter I'm afraid There is, I I did even say last week that there are a load of things that we're going to discuss and we've kind of only discussed one of them, the infrastructure. It didn't work out, but I said earlier, plans can change. So that means that season three, episode three, will be the conclusion of, well, what has become a bit of a deep dive into the crash at Carmont. 
Next time, we are going to discuss opportunities that were missed in the period between the completion of work on site and the accident to realise and rectify the mistakes. We're also going to talk about whether processes and method of works around extreme weather incidents could have prevented the accident, or at least reduced the severity. We're going to chat about the age of the rolling stock that's involved and how that might have affected outcomes, and we're going to look at the recommendations that the report brought when it was published earlier this year. Finally, we're going to talk about how a dark day in August of 2020 actually managed to create something very positive within the industry, which we hadn't previously seen. Just as a closing comment for this episode, there is an air of frustration that sometimes percolates through me while I'm researching and writing this podcast, especially when you can read through the report and you can identify the point at which disaster was assured. I don't believe for a second that actions taken by and decisions made by contractors on a remote Aberdeenshire work site 10, 11 years ago were done with anything in mind other than a perception and a genuine belief of doing the right thing for the business or that the alterations they made were delivering the best possible drainage solution, the best possible outcome for the work. I definitely, 100% don't think that there was a single bad drop of bad intent in anyone's decision-making process. But I can't believe that at 8am on the 12th of August 2020, a single member of the work team who had installed the pipes at Carmont had Carmont anywhere near the forefront of their minds. But despite all this, decisions and actions taken on the ground there led to the events that took place only an hour later. I'm sure that over the course of the 12th, Up and down the country, many minds started to think back to where they had been, what they had been doing, and what they had decided a decade earlier. Thank you for joining us for yet another episode of Season 3. As I've always said, please do come and find me on social media if you want to have a conversation or a chat, if you want to ask any questions, provide any feedback, let me know. Just search for Daniel Fox Rail or at Signals to Danger. Um, I've said before, I do have a Patreon um, to, to back up and support this podcast, and I haven't plugged it this episode or last episode. If you are interested and you want to go along and have a look at that, get yourself to patreon.com forward slash signals to danger. Entirely up to you. That's the most I'm going to say about it at this point. The music that you've heard in this episode has been It's Just a Dream by Lars Mayer, Folk Story and Story Is She Left Without a Trace by Trevor Kowalski, Modern Mysteries by Matilda Skoner Carlson, Fay in Mist by Magnus Ludvigsen, 
The Orchard by Jason Albom, Northern Cliff by Aramis Talbot, and this week's closing credits are Rose Coloured Faith by Rand Aldo. That's it from me. And until the third part of this, travel safe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.